But the one thing I think we will need to continue to emphasize and harvest more within our force is this idea of innovation and adaptability. Because I think the future for our Army is going to be defined by us being in a number of circumstances like we've never experienced before and our ability to rapidly innovate and rise above those challenges and take uh, the lessons that are happening in, in, the, uh, in whatever battlefield we're on and rapidly scale up to the rest of the Army so we can excel that. I think that is going to be a critical, critical capability that the Army needs to harvest amongst our, uh, amongst our officer corps. fellow leaders and welcome to the Military Leader Podcast. Today I am honored to speak with Major General J.P. McGee. Major General McGee currently serves as the head of the Army Talent Management Task Force, which is in charge of revolutionizing the Army's personnel and talent management systems. Many of those who listen to this podcast are on the implementation end of that task force's work. So, sir, welcome to the podcast and I thank you for taking the time to help us understand where the Army is going with talent management. Drew, thank you very much. It's great to be with you, and I look forward to having a great conversation with you. Thank you, sir. So if you don't mind, sir, let's start off. If you could share a little bit about the evolution of the task force, its formation, and then your role as the director. Sure. So the the, uh, the Army's Talent Management Task Force has been around actually for a number of years. It was stood up when General McConville, our current chief, was the G1 of the Army, and he maintained it through his time as the vice chief staff of the Army. So it's been it's been had a number of distinguished officers serving as uh, as its director. You had General Semonite, who was a director. You had uh, General Schaffner, who was a, a director. General Tammy Smith before me, and uh, and I arrived into the job in July of 2018 after working for two years at Army Cyber Command. When I was at Army Cyber Command, one of the responsibilities that I had was talent management for the Cyber Force, and so. I was able to work with that unique group of, uh, of individuals who have some special talents for the Army and uh, was brought to this position where I could take some of those lessons learned and apply them you know, Army-wide. Uh, the Talent Management Task Force has grown significantly as General McConnell has moved up to become the Chief of Staff of the Army. Uh, we report directly to him, and uh, we have grown from about 15, uh, a team of about 15 when I arrived, to right now we've got eight, about 80 members who are uh, now looking at all elements of how we manage the uh, the officer corps. We've also expanded into the uh, the guard and reserve elements, as well as a, uh, a, a beginning effort in terms of how we manage non-commissioned officers differently to take some of these best practices that we've learned to the officer corps and apply them to the uh, to the non-commissioned officer corps. So, you, so you're the implementation arm then of the chief's uh, priorities for personnel and talent management. So when the chief talks about people being his number one priority, there are lots of people who, uh, who have responsibility for that. But specifically when he talks about establishing a 21st century talent management system for the Army, we are the, we are the lead executors of that. And it's not just an implementation arm. It, uh, it involves uh, a whole lot more than that. So the first thing is we try – well, the first response we've been given is an act, the 2019 NDAA uh, personnel legislative changes, which are really significant because they've given us much more flexibility in terms of how we can manage our officers. As you know, 
much of the rules and laws uh, and how we how we manage our offshore comes to us from Congress. And the last big set of laws that have framed the way we manage our officer corps is really the 1980 Defense Officer Personnel Management Act. In 2019, there were significant changes given to the services by Congress in an attempt to, to start breaking much of the rigidity with how we uh, we manage the uh, the officer corps. That, though, we've been given this great mission by the Secretary and the Chief to determine areas of development within the uh, management of the officer corps, specifically for right now where we can go ahead and initiate pilots and experiment with different ways of managing the officer corps with a subgroup of our, of our officer corps, studying to see how those pilots worked and whether they provided value or not to the, uh, to the officer corps. And then if they did, rapidly scale that to the rest of the Army. What the Secretary and Chief have told us is they want us to move out rapidly and they want us to deliver a 10x change, not a 10% change. And so I think, the two big examples of how we've moved rapidly from pilots and prototypes to full-scale implementation has been the tank matter assessment program and the Army Town Alignment pro pro program, which I know we'll both talk about uh, today. Yes, sir. Right. Was this, now you go back to the, um, the authorization that Congress gave, sir. Was this uh, an internally driven um, uh, change or was this directed kind of on DOD and on the Army to go through this reform? So the interesting genesis of the 2019 NDA legislation was specifically coming from Senator John McCain, who wanted to see the greater flexibility given to the services for the management of the, uh, the officer corps. It's the lab, and they called up McCain NDAA. And so it incorporated a whole bunch of things that he had thought the services needed to manage talents better within the, uh, the services. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think they're all things that we had, as an Army, run into in terms of the management really the, the, the genesis of this where it really came from was from the uh, the Senate and specifically Senator John McCain. Okay. Okay. And and you mentioned 10% change versus 10x change there. And I think that's a concept that we're all getting our heads wrapped around because I, I mean, the reason I think you say that is because we're used to just tweaking the current systems that we have in the Army and making them a little bit better. But that's not what you're talking about here, is it? That's exactly right. And I think all of us as officers grow up with this idea that if you could leave a good organization just 10% better than what you what you had. That is sort of, that is good enough, and and that's not the mandate that we've been given. They've been asking for us to make significant uh, changes. I think with the chief, the, the words the chief uses is he wants transformational change in terms of the way we manage our our officers. So you can take a look at most of the things that we're doing aren't changes on the margins, but are deep substantive changes that I think really go at one of the core. All of these go at the, really the core issue of how we transform the Army's personnel management systems from an industrial age practice to information age practices. And at the core of that is really how do we move to a data-rich environment so we can better manage our people. And that's, that, is, that is the key foundation of many of these things. So you'll see when we talk about things like the Botanic Mentor Assessment Program, when we talk about things like the Army Alignment Process, that both of those, while they affect the officer corps, they also start developing deep knowledge about our officer course so we can better acquire officers in the future, develop, employ, and retain officers as we move forward. I guess what you're doing then is providing uh, awareness into the population that it never had before. Is that right? So I, I think uh, I think there's, uh, there's a whole bunch of pieces to that, that Drew. So one is, is this movement from really strength management when what you're really concerned about as is numbers, which is really what our system is based on right now, mm -hmm. the talent. So what that looks like is 
you take a look at the colonels that we have in the army today and we're over a hundred percent. So, you know, our, our legacy system would say, well, if we're 105% in colonels, we don't have any problems with colonels because we've mm-hmm. got 105%. But we are not yet able, what we're trying to drive towards is being able to ask, do we have the right colonels in the Army to drive the mission of the Army forward and do what we need it to do? And that's that's how this starts to uh, that's how this starts to change over time. And the use of the evaluations, I think, is always going to be fundamental to the way we manage our officer report because senior raiders have the best insight of that. But what we're trying to do is expand uh, the the ways that we look at our officers in order to make sure we make the best decisions about who's going to be selected for a critical position like a battalion commander. Okay. Yes, sir. So um, we've just gone through the, the AIM uh, marketplace cycle here. Uh, we've got uh, RFOs getting cut across the Army. People are I mean, they've experienced this for the for the first time. Maybe, what are some of the immediate takeaways that you have after going through this uh, this cycle here that that we really need to understand as we go forward in the army? So, I think there I think there are a number of things that are important to highlight. So, first of all, I think it's important to highlight how significant of a change this is as we move from the centralized command and control system, where we let uh, Human Resources Command, who is staffed with great officers, be the arbiters and determinate determinate determinators. Uh, people who determine where where officers are supposed to go um, into devolving this down to having units and individual officers have a say. So that's a that's a fundamental shift, and we decided to do it for the first time with a large population in order to represent the seriousness with which our chief takes our drive towards creating this uh, this new system. So the first time execution for something with fourteen thousand five hundred officers is always going to have some uh, some bumps, but the idea was that we would rapidly learn what we needed to do to do this better in the future instead of waiting and studying this for another 18 months. Because what I've learned in this job is if you study for 18 months, you really don't get 18 months worth of value. What you've got to do is incorporate this concept of learning by doing. And that's what we did. And so we went forward and and did that. And I think from the perspective of our task force, from the perspective of human resources, it really exceeded everyone's expectations in a number of key ways which is absolutely not to say that it wasn't flawless and there weren't a whole lot of lessons learned. So the first big piece is we were really surprised at the levels of participation and frankly, uh, very heartened by that. Mm-hmm. The other thing is what we learned is that when you participate in this as an individual or a unit and you're more active in your participation, you get better results. And so 45% of the officers when the market closed and we ran the, uh, the matching models had a, had a one-to-one match in terms of where they wanted to, uh, where they wanted to go. Okay. Now, were there issues and was there a tremendous amount of learning? Certainly. So I think one of the things we've learned is that this is a this is a new burden that is placed on units and to some degree to an officer. Now, I would like to just think about it in this way, though. Anytime you impose a new task on a unit or on an individual, and the Army Tile Alignment process enabled by the software AIM-2 requires more work, the first thing that happens is we all adapt our processes and what we do individually or as a team in order to figure out how to actually execute that new process. Mm-hmm. So that happened in real time as we as we did this. So units have already developed now their own SOPs for how they can streamline this. Mm-hmm. Individuals will, uh, will do the same. And then between now and the next summer cycle that we run, we're doing a series of improvements on the AIM 2.0 software in order to make it easier, first for units and then for individuals to be able to, uh, to exercise this. But I think the other piece that we were really heartened by when we saw the results of the uh, Army Town Alignment process is that 
is that there were neg- none of the negative outcomes that we were at least concerned might happen. And so there was this concern that performance distribution would be uh, unequal and, and people would not go to places that are traditionally hard to fill, places like Korea, Fort Polk, Fort Irwin, and you would see a drop in the quality of the officers as HRC measures it right now which is through the use of what they call a manner of performance. Mm-hmm. But we saw, and, and so I would just point out that the manner of uh, performance, the MOP score is not an indication of talent as much as it's an indicator of whether you're going to be promoted or not. So I think those are two different things. Okay. But what we saw by, by just looking at what the MOP scores were for where officers went across the Army is that what we did with the uh, Army Talent Liner process was within any norm for about the last couple of years worth of, of what the performance distribution looked like across the Army. So the performance distribution of officers arriving to Korea this summer is going to be similar to what it was a year ago to two years ago. Same thing with places like Fort Irwin, where you are, where we are right now. Um, so that was one. We saw that there was no trend where there was anything that would indicate any uh, any hiring authority was, was doing any form of... Uh, of anything but hiring people based on their merits. There was nothing that would mm-hmm. get out of, uh, out of whack in terms of fair hiring practices. So does um, that balancing, that, that evening out of, of uh, talent uh, based on, uh, you know, the, the MOP, was that natural? Was that part of the algorithm? Or how, how, did, how did we settle on that, just the way it fell out? So it just is just the way that it fell out. Okay. But did not, we did not have to get involved in that. We did not let uh, individual units see what the mob scores were. It just worked out through the interview process and the selection process in terms of how this ran. Um, and you said some units are responding to this. And I think for the first time, this this cycle was really the awareness that units in some ways have to sell themselves or at least expose what it's like to be an officer and serve in that unit uh, so that they can draw um, you know, the, the, the right talent. Um, have you seen some units do it, do it well? What are, what are, uh, what are some some responses out there, I think, that may be models for the force. So, so Drew, one of the things that, that came through loud and clear is obviously something that, that we that we always knew, which is geography matters for a lot of units. Okay, so if you're commanding a unit in Italy, there are a whole bunch of soldiers who want to go there. Fort Carson is similarly geographically advantaged. Um, and there are some units in some locations that tr- soldiers traditionally are less, uh, are less eager to go. Places like or Polk, or Irwin, Korea, and some uh, and some other locations. But what I think was really interesting is if you think through how this actually works, the Army still has to send officers to places that may not be high on people's uh, on people's wish lists. But what we've actually given now is officers an opportunity to have a vote and a say in terms of of where they can go because the number one. Uh, consideration that was was used when we ran the algorithm was the preference of the officer and of course we try to match that with we, we had to match that with the preference of the uh, units but the overriding factor was the preference of the uh, of the officer and so what we found is uh commanders in places like korea and i'm thinking of colonel john Belishka, who commands a 210 fire uh, field artillery brigade up there colonel uh kendall clark who's down 310 mountain in uh, in fort polk what these great commanders did is they were very eager to go and advertise their units to the officer corps. To, so they had a chance to explain to people why they should want to come to a place like Fort Polk. What are the follow-on opportunities? What are the career developmental opportunities? What's the command? And they had an offer, command weights. So many people want to go down their command a company rapidly and then they go do something else with their career. 
And so what you have is you now have officers who are part of the discussion and officers who have preference places like Fort Polk and Korea and Fort Irwin high on their uh, high on their preferences. So that when they show up, they know that they've been part of the discussion as opposed to being told by a assignment officer that they've got to go to Fort Polk. And I think it's going to fundamentally change with the nature of services. Now, will some people not want to be assigned there? Absolutely. But I don't think that's any different than the, uh, than the legacy system. I think that's where this whole idea of having a discussion and having transparency comes through. And both of those commanders who I've spoke to I really appreciate the opportunity for them to advertise all the great things that are happening in their units and their locations. So the people who are arriving there are eager to be there as opposed to feeling like they were just directed to go there by the army. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. That, that happens here at Fort Irwin uh, for sure. When I think people get, have this notion based on rumor and geography that uh, it's going to be just a terrible place to live and, and serve. And, um, and then they get down here and they see number one, the professional benefits are, are, demonstrative. Um, and that becomes clear right away. Um, but secondly, this is, there are a lot of great things that are going on at Fort Irwin that, that really don't make it out to the force. And I think pe- people do get their minds changed. Um, and so I, it's incumbent upon the units to kind of expose that and, and open it up. When looking at things like vehicular imperative, for example, that the infantry had, do you think that there's risk now that those things are taken away? Is there risk for officers to perhaps stove pipe themselves if they want to for example, say light, light, light throughout their career? Are those things that the algorithm and are are, are we going to leverage those out over time so that we keep an officer broadened? So there was a lot of work that went into the, 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 there was a lot of work that went into preparation to executing the alignment process. And one of those was a very deliberate attempt to work with the different uh, commandants of the different branches to instill a whole lot more flexibility in 600-3 and be able to open up the choices that officers were provided. So do you need to be KD qualified to go work at an RTC program or could you do that just as well right after the captain's career course? Um, do we have to insist that officers do the vehicular, you know, the vehicular imperative within the infantry? And so what we were able to do is be able to open up many of those career paths and, and flexibility. I think we'll continue to do that. So if you use the specific example of the infantry model um, in terms of whether you need to go the wheeled light or, or heavy light and imperative, uh, I think the future model, and I don't think we're completely there yet, looks like this. Like you could tell an officer that you can stay light for your entire career, but your career will be capped at a certain point because you haven't done the developmental work the Army wants you to do, right? The Army wants you to develop uh, into have a series of a set of skills that can be more broadly applied across the, uh, the Army enterprise. And at a certain point, a higher ranking, positions like the tank command and brigade command become developmental for the next ranks because that's what we're using as our opportunity to develop and grow leaders from the next higher ranks. Certainly when you get to the brigade commander level, that's very true. And so you could, you could see how this could go forward where you could say, certainly you can stay in only light or airborne units or heavy, only heavy units if you chose to, but you will not be someone who is considered for, uh, for BCT command. Now, you may be considered for an installation command, potentially. You could be considered for other, other types of command, but you won't be on the BCT track because you've not developed the broad set of skills that we want you to have as an officer. So it's less an idea of us forcing officers to go down a path as much as it is creating some opportunity, but they should do that fully informed of what the, what the uh, impact of their decisions. And my, I imagine what will happen if you'll have some officers 
who will be very eager to uh, to develop themselves broadly and stay flexible. And you might have some who are like, I really don't want to be a brigade commander. That's not a goal that I have. I want to be a battalion commander, and that's going to be career success for me. And I think that's fine as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. So, sir, I know we, we just went through the first round of the battalion commander assessment program. Uh, what are some of the takeaways, and where do you see that, that program going in the future? Yeah, thanks, Drew. Let me, let me just explain to you the entire process and in terms of how this works. So, uh, so everybody understands how this all came together and, uh, and, and how this works. So in September, the Lieutenant Colonel Command and Key Billet CSL Board, Central Selection Board met. And, uh, and there were 1,902 officers who were eligible to compete for those positions. 1,135 of them actually opted in for consideration for selection for Tank Command Key Billet. That board met and established an order of merit list of 1 to 1,135. And then from that order of merit list, we determined what the requirements for principles and ultimates were for every branch and functional area that would be considered. From that, there was a list of 816 officers who were eligible to participate at DCAP if they wanted to. From that list of 816, there are actually 750 officers who attended. They went through the entire program. Officers could have been determined not ready for command for one of three reasons. One is if they were determined to be uh, out, if they were, uh, if they did not meet the Army's height weight standards. Mm-hmm. One, the other one would be if they did not pass a 60 points per event, 180 points total uh, APFT score on, mm-hmm. a, on a, a standard APFT. Those officers in those two groups were sent home immediately and it didn't go any further into the Botanic Matter Assessment Program. The last group where you could be determined not ready for command was in the collective opinion of the uh, of the panel that was made up of a major general, two brigadier generals, and two former brigade commanders, and advised by a nominative command sergeant major. Uh, those officers were determined not ready for command based on the totality of the information we had gathered on the uh, on the candidates. Um, when that uh, when that list was determined for everyone who was ready for command, that ready for command lists. Uh, is going to be is broken down into 436 principles, and then everyone else is an alternate. Mm-hmm. We know the next few weeks will be notifying those officers who are determined not ready for command. The next few weeks will release the principal and alternate list. The OML, the order of merit for that, uh, the principal and alternate list, is, deten- is determined by bringing in five different factors and combining them together. So the first was the manner of past performances, judged by how they performed through the central selection process. Second, they had a writing test that was a part of their score. They had a physical fitness test, an APFT, which was part of their score. They had a verbal communication score provided in the panel, and they had a cognitive, non-cognitive assessment. Those five events reordered the OML and established the 1 to 436 list of those were principles, and then further went deeper and established the rest of the officers who were uh, on, that, on that alternate list. Okay. Now, let me that, now that, sir, that, I mean, this is, this is a big change for the Army here. This is what you just said there. That was the standard OML that, that would have been the OML going forward and how we got slated. And then we would, would have gone down the list, but now we're taking BCAP scores and we're shuffling up that list again and reordering the OML, right? That's exactly right. There was significant change. If you took the list of 436 names that the CSL list would have produced mm-hmm. and you took the list of 436 names that the BCAP produced, there is a significant amount of change. Okay. Okay. So that list in its ordered form will be has been provided to HRC and HRC is going to go through their legacy process of how they slate people to uh, to category and then slate them to position. That's all based on the preference by the officer. The bigger question is, 
do we have enough information to assist in the whole slating process over time? And uh, I think we might be able to get there in a few years. I think we're definitely not there now. So it's not being used right now. We're still basing off on, uh, on office of preference because preference is very important. And I think the thing that we need to be careful about, Drew, is we need to be careful about trying to have the BCAP do too much. And so if the BCAP just helps us identify better officers to put into battalion command, that's a tremendous value. And so you start to water down some of this impact, I think, if you try to throw every issue the Army has incorporated. And I have, uh, my, my thinking of this has evolved over time. I thought we could originally use this as a tool to slate people to categories or to certain positions. And I think if you did that, you'd break down some of the fundamental aspects of the BCAP that make it so powerful right now. Part of the whole issue with, with changing the way we run the assignment cycle is actually not having to play the role of telling officers what they must do. Mm-hmm. And it's about being off what they should do and then holding them accountable if they do it or not. And so, you know, an officer should be a key player in terms of their own self-development. And I think the other piece of this, again, instead of having uh, some external third body like your assignment officer at HRC telling you what to do, this needs to be a, a conversation that officers have with mentors about where is the best place for them to go. And hopefully mentors will, will provide them the right path for them to maximize their possibility of contributing to the uh, to the Army. And I think anecdotally, what we've seen is there's a whole, whole lot more of that talking with mentors going in this in this type of uh, an assignment process than what you asked. Gotcha. Yes, sir. Um, so if you don't mind, so uh, let's talk about the future and where this is going. I understand there was uh, um, you've got some new initiatives uh, that are going to be implemented here in the, over the next couple of years. So, so I think the next, uh, you know, so we are right now in the plan of developing a course of action. It's not been approved yet for how we could do this for a, a colonel's assessment program to find out from brigade commanders. And then we're, we're working at integrating in what's something we could do to help uh, find the right sergeant majors to uh, at, at a particular level. We're not sure what level that is yet. So those are the ones that are within the idea of an assessment and selection program to, to get the right officers. I think uh, if you take a look at much of the work that we've done, it's been focused on more senior officers, and, you know, senior captains to, uh, to up to lieutenant colonels and colonels in terms of assignments. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of our work now is going to start focusing on how we better manage officers in the first five to seven years of their careers. And so we can start differentiating the talent, finding those officers with the right talents that we want to retain long term, and then having a much more productive conversation with them about what their career path would look like, what the opportunities are for them over you know, the next five to seven years in an attempt for us to retain the best talent that we have in order to retain what we're calling for winning talent, which is really a broad term because in the future, war winning talent is going to be uh, defined by all sorts of uh, expert expertise in all sorts of different fields. Certainly, War fighting is going to be at the core of that because it's our it's our core mission. But you can also see how there are other things that are going to define what war winning talent looks for, looks like for the army. So the other the other piece I think that's interesting, Drew, mm-hmm. uh, is that we are we are developing a uh, a a framework for assessments, and we're doing this very closely in conjunction with the uh, Combined Arms Center at uh, at uh, at Fort Leavenworth in terms of how do we start building a framework of assessments, uh, what we're calling an officer talent management structure, from pre-commissioning all the way to retirement for officers, so we can start getting more objective looks into our officer corps initially to help us with 
the development of those officers and maybe diagnostically to look at our, our cohorts of officers. Um, the way you could see this, I think the most simplistic way to understand this is let's just say that we uh, we want to start instituting writing assessments throughout the career of an officer. So it's in the beginning to be used for uh, for you know for Lieutenant McGee to be told that he's not at the level he should be for writing. He can mm-hmm. use that for self development. If uh, if you if we find we can also as an army use that diagnostically, so we can say hey, infantry lieutenants who are coming in the army today are coming in at lower levels of writing than we would like. So let's start building that into our professional military education framework. Mm-hmm. Development. That might not be a skill that's, uh, it might not be a talent that's, def- that's a deficit in something like military intelligence, for example. And then over time, you know, we continue to use that for a developmental and diagnostic purpose. But at a certain point, and we think that point is after CGSC, the Command General Staff College, we start using that to help uh, predict where officers should go in terms of, and, and start using that to use that as a determination for what where officers are best suited to help the mission of the army. And so if you, if you follow the example of the, uh, you know, the writing skills test, you know, over time I get developmental feedback. I, I get my, uh, my writing rises to a certain level, but then they start saying, well, is major Lieutenant McGee or Smith, the right person to put in a job as a speechwriter? Well, not based on what we've seen over time. So he probably has a set of talents that are better suited to do another job as opposed to a, uh, to be a speechwriter. It's very simplistic, mm-hmm. and I think it's more sophisticated than that as we develop this. But what it is is start giving us an objective look into our officer core that, that augments the uh, the subjective look that we get through the evaluation process. Okay. Well, I do have a, a question about the evaluation then. Do you think the OER uh, is a sufficient tool uh, in its form now, or do you think we need to evolve other evaluative processes uh, in the next coming years? So I, I think when you start, so, I mean, keep in mind, we just went through a significant change in our OERs just mm-hmm. recently. So I think everyone is reluctant to introduce a new change. And frankly, if we had tried to change the OER 18 months, two years ago, I don't think we would have had enough knowledge about what the new system is going to look like in order to really understand what an OER should look like to inform it. I think over the next few years, and I'm going to be pretty vague about that because I don't know exactly when, we'll have a better framework for how we're going to manage our officer core. And you can see how establish that, how very naturally a new OER system or evaluation system will be integrated in that to help us with decisions we make for command with something that gives us a better look at their talents over time. So we can figure out, you know, say through the ATAP process, we want to actually employ them. So you can see how these would all come together. It frankly has not been a large focus for us um, in terms of doing that. But we know it will happen over time. It just probably is not going to happen in the, uh, in the next mm-hmm. year or two. Because frankly, I think we are, you know, the OERs are a subordinate piece to the bigger changes that we're doing. And so we're trying to get the bigger changes moving. And I think the OERs will naturally fit as opposed to the other way around. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Uh, some of the initiatives that came out recently, like, um, you know, the brevet promotions, for example, or the opt-out of promotion or the, or the direct commissioning, I think a lot of the force is still just awakening to there. So um, has there been a good response to those? And then where do you, how do you see those affecting the Army in the future? So for the brevet promotions, we're rolling that out with every new assignment cycle. And so I think we're, we're seeing the force start to understand the potential of that. Mm-hmm. Um, to give you an overview, we have 770 positions given to us in the 2019 NDAA. That's from captain to, uh, to colonel. And what that looks like is when a position has been identified as being open for brevet promotions, let's just say it's a colonel's position, you can have lieutenant colonels compete 
for a colonel's position that's been identified as open for brevet. And when that local hiring authority um, hires that lieutenant colonel for that colonel's position, that lieutenant colonel needs to go through a, a boarding process back at the uh, back at the Pentagon. And after that's done, that officer is promoted to the rank of colonel, is paid for the rank of colonel, and retains the rank of colonel as long as that officer is in that position. Now, when that officer leaves that position, that officer will revert back. I think the way you do this artfully is when you try to find those officers who have high potential, who are very likely to be selected for the next rank, but we want to get them into those positions early and they can stay in that position long enough to be promoted while they're there. But we will soon be in a place where we will have officers who are, uh, who are up for promotion to the rank of colonel who will go before the colonel's promotion board wearing the rank of colonel mm -hmm. already because they've been performing those, uh, those duties. And that's obviously going to be a very strong signal um, to the to the board that these officers are already operating at that at that capacity. So we see that scaling up to the full 770 authorizations, really over the next 18 months or so, as we continue to open them up in the uh, in the marketplace. Okay, yes, sir. Now on the direct commissioning piece, I, I know that there's someone out there that's going to be listening that says, "Well, wait a second, we're not going to hire you know some uh, network engineer to come in and command an infantry company, are we?" I mean, is that is that what we're talking about here, sir? Yeah. So that's not. Uh, so the the direct commissioning is uh, is one that I think we need to we need to really start taking a much more open minded approach to. Mm -hmm. So I think if if uh, you know I, I've taken a look at this now for a number of years from my time at Army Cyber and now, and I think simply put, what the direct commissioning allows us to do is harvest the talents of our nation and incorporate them into the talents of the army. Okay, it's a recognition that in many fields where true expertise resides is in the outside world and in many of these tech fields and some of these other things. So if you look at the people who are the true world leaders in cloud computing, which is going to be absolutely fundamental to the way we conduct multi-man operations, that expertise really exists in the outside world. Mm -hmm. And so do we want to start looking at people who are experts in cloud computing and bring them in? as lieutenant colonels and colonels in order to help manage this tremendous transition to the cloud that's, again, going to be revolutionary to the way that we fight up and connect operations. And you look at many of these technologies from cloud computing to AI, nanotechnologies, hypersonics. I mean, many of these fields which are going to really determine how we conduct operations as an army in the future. And a lot of that expertise isn't resident within our within our formations, and it's not something that we can necessarily develop over time to mm -hmm. be, like, we can't wait, we can't wait for the next 20 years, 25 years to create a kernel who's going to help us with the cloud computing transition. We've expanded this broadly across the entire army because there's a recognition that there are talents out there that we may want to bring into even some of our more basic branches. And so where this first came up was under the, uh, where this first came up was the idea of direct commissioning some, some officers in even branches like infantry and armor, and that came from our former chief of staff of the army, who said, look, the British, the French, the Australians, the New Zealanders, those, those, those armies make really good officers. If we would want to bring one of them in and take their experiences and use them to augment our, our combat capabilities, why wouldn't? And so it's not an idea of taking someone, you know, out of the civilian world who's, uh, you know, who's a, uh, you know, a software engineer and making them infantry battalion commanders. Mm -hmm. That's not what we're talking about. But what we're talking about is finding those people with the right talents and bringing them in. And that's why we're trying to take this top-down driven approach where we're we're asking all branches and functional areas to find those candidates who are out there 
who might be good candidates to come in and add something to our force. A, a couple other, uh, a couple other thoughts on that. I think there are a significant number, significant enough to make a difference uh, in terms of our, our mission of Americans who would be more than willing to come in and serve for a number of years. Now they're not going to come in and do 30 years like I have done, but they may want to be able to come in for three to five years, four to six years, something like that. Mm -hmm. Just so, you know, as they're, as they're, as they grow older, they can say, yeah, I was an army major. I was an army lieutenant colonel for four years. And that meant a tremendous amount to me because I wanted to pay back to my, uh, my country. I think there are more people out there than you realize. We just did the, uh, the planning conference and we brought in one of our direct commissioning our direct commission officers who went into the cyber field, which is where we've done all of our direct missions so far. He was just motivated to join the army team. Mm -hmm. He wanted to contribute to the mission. And this, this, uh, this officer took a 50% pay cut to come in and serve as a captain in the army. And so people today aren't just, you know, Americans today aren't just motivated by money and the army, it has a, uh, a tremendous uh, draw to people who want to serve a bigger purpose. Again, I don't think we're going to have an officer corps that's made up exclusively of direct commissioning officers, but I do think we need to recognize that this is a way that we can become dramatically better without starting to have the start of the second lieutenant's mm -hmm. development. Yes, sir. Yeah, and expands our notion and really the public's notion of what it means to serve, too. It gives us more options, gives them more options for that. That's Absolutely. Great. Yes, sir. Good. Uh, well, before we close out here, sir, uh, we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, your your current role and where the Army's going with talent management. Um but, you know, th this question kind of drives to, you know, uh, your approach as a leader. Um, and I'll ask you, if you could inject one, you know, personal value, one trait, one leadership quality into every junior leader in the Army, what would it be? It's an interesting question because I, I think I would just answer that question a little bit differently, Drew, mm -hmm. which I think the Army does a fantastic job of bringing in officers and instilling the right values mm -hmm. and the right uh the right ethos of what it means to be a servant leader and to serve as an officer. I, that's, I wouldn't change any of that, not, not, for, not for anything. But the one thing I think we will need to continue to emphasize and harvest more within our force is this idea of innovation and adaptability. Because I think the future for our Army is going to be defined by us being in a number of circumstances like we've never experienced before and our, abil our ability to rapidly innovate and rise above those challenges and take uh, the lessons that are happening in, in, the, uh, in whatever battlefield we're on and rapidly scale out to the rest of the Army so we can excel that. I think that is going to be a critical, critical capability that the Army needs to harvest amongst our, uh, amongst our officer corps. We tend to look on the task force as our investment in the talents of our people as a strategic hedge against where we think we're going to be and where we actually will be in the future. Ten years down the road, we're going to make our predictions about what we want, uh, where we think we're going to be as an army. Reality will be different. There's going to be that, that difference. And the way you narrow that gap, the way you, you, you close that gap, is by having the right people with the right set of skills. And at the core of that needs to be this, this, uh, this concept of adaptability and an innovative spirit so we can actually excel in the face of future challenges. And so mm -hmm. I think that's a piece that I would build upon the already strong values that we create within our officer corps. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. In some ways, it feels like your task force's efforts in the future for talent management in the Army is building adaptability into the system for when we need it later. Right. And you can see how all these things come together. 
right? Like we are empowering officers to make more informed decisions about themselves. Mm-hmm. We're not, we're making unit commanders go out and hire their own teams. I mean, we are not having them rely on a central authority that just sort of takes care of all of these things for them. We're making them take responsibility for it. And so you can see how these all start fostering a greater sense of uh, innovation and adaptability within our officer pool, which I think is going to be critical for us to win future fights. Mm, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Great. Okay, sir, I'd like to ask you about uh, some of the coaching that uh, mentors and, and, and protégés are uh, giving and getting and how that conversation is evolving um, in this new system here. How, how can leaders help uh, shape and help uh, guide junior, junior leaders uh, as they go through the course of their career? So I think there are a number there are a number of pieces of that. So I think senior leaders or anyone who's asked to mentor, you know, an officer needs to understand these changes and be able to help their, you know, their subordinates or the, the people they're mentoring uh, be able to navigate all these changes. And so there's a responsibility for them not to just give advice based on what happened to them, but really fully understand the increased levels of flexibility and what that comes along with. In order to assist that, we're moving we're moving out as a task force to see how we can start scaling career coaching to assist the officer corps with this. And so we've got an initiative that's happening at the Command General Staff Caller. We have another one that's happening in select uh, in select uh, uh, CAPS career courses mm-hmm. in order to allow coaching vice mentoring. So mentoring is you have someone that you've connected with within the Army. They generally are senior to you. They give you the best advice that they can. The idea as a coach is the coach is only concerned about you as an individual and you can have a much more candid conversation with a coach than you could potentially with a uh, with a mentor. And so the coach has to give you a he has to understand the army system and all the flexibility that we're we're granting. But you all of a sudden have someone that you can have this conversation with based on the assessments that you're doing, based on the new flexibilities that have been established, based on on their best advice. And you can do that in a way where there's not going to be any any recrimination or blowback. You could imagine, you know, as a, as a captain, if maybe you were a company commander, you were strongly considering going into a functional area. You may not want to have that conversation with the battalion brigade commander because you might be concerned they may not look, uh, look kindly upon something. Sure. Like yes, sir. An evaluation. You, uh, you could see if you were really strongly considering maybe getting out of the army, you would want to wait for the last minute because you wouldn't want to, you, you would want to, you could have a, a place where you could talk with somebody who's real, who's, who really is your agent in this, as opposed to the army or the institution the agent. So I think that's, I think that's one of the pieces. But I think as we, as we, uh, as we bring those online, and, and the real challenge is, is how do we get a coaching program that can be of value to the officer corps, and then have it at the right level of quality, so officers will use it and derive benefit from it. And then scale it, and so I don't think we. I think that's why we're moving out with uh, with pilots right now to figure out where that begins in the management of our officer corps, what that actually looks like. Okay, you're envisioning someone that's per, that the army provides as a coach who's got a little more knowledge about the system and about the the career, um, much like I guess after if you remember after MSAF, sir, I know there was an op, there was an option to plug into a coach and maybe get some some detailed results about your MSAF results. Is that something kind of similar? That's, that's exactly right. Okay. And that's a conversation between the officer and the coach. And that's not a conversation between the officer and the army in any in any in any form. So that's the that's the vision for it, which we still need to flesh out. It's another it's another one of the initiatives we're working gotcha. aggressively right now. Um, so so I think that's how that goes forward. But as you 
as you look at us establishing more flexibilities, whether that's opting in or opting out of promotion boards, whether that's uh, you know the assignment flexibilities we're now providing, we think it's wise to have somebody that an officer can have a conversation with outside of the chain of command, outside of their mentors, to be able to help that. It's also a place where if the officer chooses, they can share the assessments that they've uh, that they've done in order to have that coach actually assist in the management of that officer and maybe see themselves a little bit better. Okay, would this then change maybe the role of the assignment officers at uh, at branches right now? I think it would. I think it would over time. Uh, I think. Uh, it's, it's tough calling an assignment officer a career coach because there's a lot more coaching, as I've learned, than just changing a name. Okay. And if the officer still has the imperative of putting an officer into a position, uh, de facto, they can't be a coach. Uh, they, they can give advice, but a career, a career coach actually within the field has a definition. And the client for a career coach is the individual, not the, uh, not the institution. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. So that's where it starts to, to break down when we start calling assignment officers career coaches. I see. Okay. It's a little safer space for the officer to have a conversation about what the true desires are. Yes, sir. As we close here, sir, what's the, what's the best way for soldiers and leaders out there to keep up with what the task force is doing? Okay, so there is a lot of information. We're continuing to develop information. The single best place to go is you go to our, uh, our website at talent.army.mil where you can see videos, links to articles, and any new uh, new initiatives we're, uh, we're running that uh, we're continually updating that. So that would be where I'd recommend everybody go as a central point for information. Okay. Well, sir, thank you for taking the time today to share what the task force is doing. We appreciate you and your team's efforts there, and we look forward to what's coming down the pipe. All right, Drew, thank you very much.